Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians 2, and I want to give you some background uh, before I read uh, this portion of of God's Word uh, to help maybe make sense of uh, what's going on here. Um, Back in 1 Corinthians, uh, we read this in 1 Corinthians 5. It says this, and this is the background, I believe. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that it's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So here's the situation when it says uh, having a relationship or, or immorality uh, with his father's wife, that's possibly a, a stepmother uh, situation. But uh, Paul is, is concerned uh, back then when he addressed it on two levels. One is the sin itself, but then the other aspect is that, that the Corinthian church was aware of that sin and they seemed to be boasting of it. They were, they were kind of proud that they were a tolerant enough group that uh, they had these things going on and, and they, were, they were okay with that, uh, kind of being tolerant of this uh, alternative lifestyle, so to speak. Uh, Paul told them that you, should, uh, you shouldn't be boasting, but ultimately what you need to do is to, to put him out of the church. And he is about to explain in this passage that I'm reading today that uh, that kind of a, a, a tolerance affects not only that person, but it affects the whole church. And uh, so this is what we would call uh, church discipline, to put them out of the church. Now, uh, back in Matthew 18, and we're not going to go into that today, but, but in Matthew 18, you see what Jesus laid out as the steps of, of discipline and the importance of it and how an unrepentant person uh, must be dealt with. So what he is uh, he, he's saying, you don't automatically just put them out of the church, but there are actual steps that you should take. And then if they continue to be unrepentant, that's when they're put out of the church. Um, so evidently, the Corinthian church did what Paul said. They exercised church discipline. That person was put out of the church, but then... At some later point, he evidently repented, which is what you aim for in church discipline. But now, the same church that put him out of the church didn't know how to deal with restoring him and bringing him back. Now, how do we we deal with him? So, like he did earlier, uh, Paul uh, walks them through how to go about this restoration. Now, there's two things, again, before we get to the passage, 
that I, I, I want to mention just by way of introduction, because uh, I use the term church discipline. And I, I want us to understand, first of all, that church discipline should not be seen as negative. Uh, we are a family. The church is a family. Now, in a family that loves each other, there is correction and there is discipline. And it's done out of love. That's how it should be seen and exercised when it's done within the church. The other thing to remember about that too is that that here's what what, uh, God says in uh, uh, Hebrews 12, verse 6. It says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So it's very clear that God sees it as, uh, as positive, that the very fact, if you're chastised as a believer, if you, if you have discipline from the Lord toward you, it's because you're a son and he loves you. And that's evidence of that. The second thing is that uh, we need to understand in terms of uh, discipline is that that word is from the same root word for disciple. And they both have to do with learning and instruction. Now, here at St. Andrews, we uh, say that, that everything we do, all of our ministries are in order to make disciples. And so that must, by necessity, be a part of making a disciple. And if a church leaves that component out, the component of correction and instruction, then they've left an important part of discipleship out. So let's, let's listen to what Paul says to this Corinthian church about the, the restoration of this one who is uh, to be corrected. Second uh, Corinthians, and I'm going to pick up with the fifth verse. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, now we would ask for you to teach us from this portion of your word. You taught the church in Corinth and you have taught your church down through the centuries and we ask now that your Holy Spirit would instruct us and correct us 
discipline us, as it were, from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I want to give you uh, five points today from this brief section uh, in terms of how we ought to look at that situation and how the church needs to, to view it as well. Uh, the first one is that, that there is a, a need for great sensitivity in carrying out discipline, a need for great sensitivity in carrying out discipline. Look at verse 5. It says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Now notice in, in verse 5 and 6 here, what we see is that, that Paul avoids even naming the person. He was never hesitant about bringing out names, even if it was in a negative sense. But here, he chooses not to. Now, ordinarily, unless a a sin is very public, that's how discipline ought to take place. Discipline is not about embarrassing a person or embarrassing a person's family uh, when that person has, has sinned. So most often, discipline within the church should begin and end with the individual. And by the way, back in Matthew 18, that's where Jesus says it. It always should begin, one person with one person. So Paul's showing a, here a, a sensitivity uh, to that person, to his family. But, but look at what, uh, what he says uh, on the same subject over in Galatians. In Galatians 6, verse 1, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. There you have it, gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So, in, in Galatians, he's, he's giving uh, the attitude that this should always be done with. An attitude of, of humility. An attitude, those who have to uh, be involved with discipline in another should have the attitude that I understand that the sin that you have committed is a sin that I'm perfectly capable of committing. That's what he's, he's getting at here. He says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And so when, when that's done, that helps to bring about that spirit of gentleness that is necessary. And then look what he, <clears throat> he continues to say in uh, the, the next three verses, actually six through eight. <clears throat> For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you 
to reaffirm your love for him. So here's, here's what they are to do. They forgive. This is after repentance. They forgive. They comfort. And they reaffirm their love for that one who once was in sin but now has repented. Now why do they do that? Well, Paul says we don't want them to be overwhelmed by some kind of a continuing discipline after discipline has already had its proper effect of bringing one to repentance. So that person had evidently shown sorrow for his sin, and Paul didn't want his spirit destroyed by being overwhelmed, by being separated from the body of Christ. So point two then Paul makes here, and that is that there is a broad purpose in discipline. Uh, Those verses that I just read, six through eight, uh, they did use the word punishment, but also spoke of a reaffirmation of love. Now let's look at what he says over uh, what the Bible says over in uh, the book of James in James chapter five and verse nineteen. It says this, and we're thinking about the the purpose and discipline. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, we have what we call the Book of Church Order. And uh, that tells us how we should proceed as churches so that there is a consistency uh, in our denomination of doing things, and one aspect of that is is uh, how we are to do discipline, and it, it it gives the biblical steps, but how that can practically work out. But before it talks about discipline, it gives the purpose and and the reason for discipline, and in our book of church order, it it gives three reasons for that. The first one is the glory of God. You might not think that's where it would start, but the first one is the glory of God, which is what we should do all things for, right? And then the second one is the purity of his church. Remember how Paul said, look, this affects not only you, but but the whole church. And then the third one is the, the keeping and reclaiming of disobedient sinners. So, Uh, Like discipline, uh, when it comes to our children, if we only punish, then we've missed the point of loving correction. And that's ultimately our goal as well. Paul then thirdly indicates that discipline speaks to the integrity of the church. Uh, Look at verse 9. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. And then down in verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity. We talked about that word last week. 
as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, during the Reformation, uh, there was a discussion of what is a true church? How do we know if a a church is actually uh, a true church? And so the Reformers uh, developed uh, basically three marks of a true church. The first mark of a true church is the, the right preaching of the word. The second mark is the right administration <clears throat> of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And then the third mark of a true church is the proper exercise of discipline. That might surprise you. But the Reformers felt that that without all three of those things, that a church was not functioning as a true church should function. So here's how it speaks to our integrity as a church. There is an old accusation uh, against the church. Um, and here, l- let me explain it this way. Uh, let's say you invite someone to church, and uh, they don't like church, but here's what they, they say to you. They say, well, I, I don't want to go to any church because it's just full of hypocrites. Now, the, the standard answer to that only halfway tongue-in-cheek, to someone saying, well, the church is just full of hypocrites, is, well, come on anyway, there's always room for for one more. But I want to give you what what I think is a a better response and a better reason, a, a better way to deal with that. We need to understand that that all hypocrisy is sin. But not all sin is hypocrisy. In fact, the church that admits that it it has people in it that sin, which we certainly do, uh, the church that seeks to preach that we need to live a life of obedience and repentance, And the church that deals with sin when it does occur, that church is not hypocritical when it comes to sin. A church is only hypocritical when it comes to sin if if we say we're against sin, but we never correct it and we never deal with it. We never address it from God's word, from the pulpit, from teaching, from from, uh, personal accounting. That's why teaching that we need to live a life of repentance and even church discipline when necessary is essential for the integrity of the church. And understand this. Proper discipline helps people. It's not to hurt them. Now, there's a fourth principle in in this passage. And that is when the church forgives, there is forgiveness. 
uh, verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Now Jesus, I remember I've mentioned Matthew 18, he addresses this over in Matthew 18. After he gives the steps of, of discipline, he says this in Matthew 18, 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So here's the point. When the church has stated that there is forgiveness for the repentant, it is then our responsibility to forgive. Paul models that here. So it would be wrong for someone to continue to act toward a a repentant believer as if he or she were not repentant. Again, let's think about discipline with, with a child. Once the correction has taken place, if the parent continues to to hold a grudge or treat that child in a way as if the child was not sorry, then it's going to have a detrimental effect on that child and will oppress the child's spirit ultimately. So the fifth principle in this passage is uh, that there is a real enemy being dealt with in discipline. A real enemy. It's, as it were, a cosmic battle we're talking about. Verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So here are some ways that that Satan outwits us pertaining to this issue, or he could potentially outwit us in this issue. He is winning if we choose to ignore sin altogether. He's getting his way. He's he's just fine with that. He's winning if we deal with sin in an unloving manner. Or a prideful manner. He is winning if we refuse to forgive one who is repentant. Satan's happy with that. If the church or individuals hold a grudge. And he is winning if we forgive but refuse to restore one who has been forgiven. So let me leave you with uh, another application here. We are in uh, the midst of a, a worldwide pandemic. Everything's different. It's affected everything and even how we are worshiping today. And I'm not minimizing that, not even for a moment. But we need to remember, we need to understand that this current crisis is going to come and go. But what we've talked about today 
can affect your eternity. It's not a fleeting issue. Now, let me just say that in terms of this passage, there are some modern commentators that uh, are going to disagree with me. They think this passage before us isn't talking about the man who uh, is referred to in 1 Corinthians 5. They think instead it's, it's describing someone who is a divisive critic of Paul. And I specifically mention that in terms of commentators because uh, I know some of you have the ESV study Bible and you're checking me out as I preach through this and seeing, well, do, do, do they agree with him? Does he agree with them? And so on. And those commentators do not agree with, with me. They think they're ones that would say, no, it's a, it's just, it's a divisive critic that Paul is, is dealing with. Now, I don't know what the motivations of those commentators are, but I, I have heard it justified from some that they assume that it's not talking about uh, the man that was into the sexual immorality because they think that the sin that was described there is irreversible. That, to me, is not consistent with the rest of Scripture. To me, one of the most encouraging things about this passage is that it is showing how God can work in the life of one who was at one point far from God, but has been brought back. And some of you are there. Some of you feel like you've done too much. You've got uh, too much history in your past for Jesus to forgive you or for the church to forgive or accept you. You need to understand everyone in the church has a history and a past. But that's the good news. You may even have a relative in your family where that's the case. But the good news is that there is nothing that you have done that is beyond the reach of Christ. His work on the cross was enough, it was sufficient. Paid it all. And that's the good news. In Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness and there is restoration. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that that is the good news of the gospel. that what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross was enough. We are so grateful. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live lives of repentance and lives of forgiveness. 
And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.